Thank you, Pastor. Good morning. By the way, I'd forgotten how much I enjoy your prayers. You're very eloquent. All right. Uh, once again, good morning. Always a pleasure to get to be with you folks. For those who weren't with us during Sunday school, my name is Tom Hoyle with Bible and Science Ministries. And since, excuse me, I'm all choked up. <coughs> excuse me. Mm, that sounds really good in the microphone, doesn't it? Uh, just a minute. You know, I get a, I'll get a drink here. Excuse me, everybody. Pardon me. Okay. I should do it. All right. Thank you for your patience. Anyway, um, since 1985, our full-time ministry has dealt with the wonderful accuracy of God's Word, especially in terms of history and archaeology and science. We believe, as I know Pastor does, the deeper we dig, the better God's Word looks. And obviously, we don't need to prove the Bible, do we? But since God's Word is always true, we would expect to find evidence, right? And there's lots of such evidence. So anyway, at least before COVID and hopefully after COVID, my full-time ministry was speaking in churches on Sundays where I get my financial and prayer support. And then during the week, I speak in public schools, Christian schools, homeschool groups, Awanas, youth families, that kind of thing. As you can imagine, last year was not a good year for my ministry. Uh, we had dozens of speaking engagements uh, postponed. And for seven months, uh, excuse me, five months straight, and then almost for two more months after that, I wasn't speaking anywhere. Although the good news is I finally had time, Pastor, to finish a program on climate change. So there was that good aspect, folks. I had tons of time to do research. But uh, anyway... Once again, always a pleasure to be with you. During Sunday school, as you might know, we talked about genes, Genesis, and George Washington Carver. And by the way, some of you were disappointed because we ran out of the DVDs and books, but I had some more in my vehicle. So if you wanted those, we have them uh, on the table there. And I also neglected to mention we have a little mini display or exhibit on George Washington Carver. Uh, among other things, we have a signed letter from him from Tuskegee Institute along with his slogan sheet. George Washington Carver, in almost all of his 30 letters, included his slogan sheet, five favorite verses, and then a prayer down at the bottom. So no matter who he was writing to, that person got his slogan sheet. That's how he shared his faith with others. So uh, those and some other things are on display there in the, um, uh, the, the meeting hall or multi-purpose room. There you go. And I'll be over there if you have any more questions or comments. We've had some more questions, by the way, regarding the books and discs, which are there. So let me say a quick word about those so people don't get the wrong thing, which would be very easy to do. As I said, we've got some more of the George Washington Carver DVDs over there. Speaking of DVDs, we are in this program sharing with you one of our astronomy programs, Astronomy and Creation. My favorite DVD on a subject is The Call of the Cosmos. This is outstanding. It is gorgeous, and it's all about how amazing the divine design is of the universe. And then, some of you have heard of this DVD, is Genesis History. I think it's the finest Christian apologetics DVD of all time. It's an hour and a half long, but it's broken up into segments. Genesis and archaeology, Genesis and biology, etc., etc., and then, folks, a terrific book by a creation astronomer is Taking Back Astronomy by Jason Lyle. The wonder of it all is out of print, but I got my hand in a whole case of these. I'm very happy about that. This gorgeous book is all about a commentary on the scientific passages in the book of Job. 
My favorite family book on biblical astronomy is Our Amazing Created Solar System. It's gorgeous, good for almost everybody. And then finally, last but not least, Wonders of Creation is my favorite creation family-level book, and it has a whole chapter on astronomy. Hey, so much for all that. Uh, we don't want to waste more time on commercials. But again, it's such a pleasure to be with you. I am just from Tacoma, so it was only two hours for me to drive this time. Um, but by the grace of God, we have been invited to speak in churches and schools in all 50 states and five foreign countries. Having said all that, we need to get started, don't we? Pastor, uh, what time is rapture this time? I'm sorry? Ooh, oh, okay, I could slow down, all right. Okay, all right. Now, no, noon is good. Noon is good. Okay, let's go ahead and have the lights, please. We don't need them to see me. We want them to see the slides. And you can go ahead and turn them all off if you want. The resolution is better, and there are fewer distractions. Okay, great. As you know from God's word, thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, the Lord of hosts is his name. Our subject is the moon. And before we take off for the moon, folks, let's see, say something about our destination, shall we? The why, what, how, and when of our moon, starting with why. What is the purpose of the moon anyway? Glad you asked. Number one, the moon comes in handy for romance. The moon comes in handy for selling telescopes. But folks, there are five very important reasons for the moon. First of all, according to God's word, it serves as a lesser light by night, correct? And then also the Bible tells us that the moon is vital in terms of keeping the signs and seasons straight. But there's several more scientific reasons regarding the moon's uh, necessity. As we're going to see later on, the moon is absolutely essential with regard to the tides of the seas. And then the moon, as we'll see in a minute, is absolutely critical to serve as a counterbalance to stabilize the Earth's rotation. Another reason, which we'll talk about right now, the moon's far side serves as a meteorite shield. If you've ever seen a picture of the far side of the moon, folks, it is covered with layer after layer, stratum after stratum of craters left by meteorites. If the moon wasn't there, folks, guess where all those meteorites are going? That's right, they're heading for the Earth. Not good. By the way, you saw the Starship Enterprise. To keep even the kids awake, you might from time to time see, see some superhero or something, okay? Dr. Werner von Braun, the father of the modern American Day space program, he said, as I became exposed to the law and order of the universe, I was literally humbled by its unerring perfection. I became convinced that there must be divine intent behind it all. My experiences of science led me to evolution. Is that what he said, folks? Led me to God. And he should know he was a rocket scientist. Or America's most famous astronaut, John Glenn, said, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. It just strengthens my faith. But we reluctantly move on from why to when. How old is the moon? Most folks, especially our evolutionary friends, believe the moon has to be at least 4 billion years old to accommodate the theory of solar system evolution, which we discuss in our second astronomy program. However, we think, in keeping with the Bible and some very fascinating evidences, the moon's a lot, lot younger. Maybe share two of these for now. 
starting with lunar orbital recession. Out of necessity, when you look at a book or a chart and you look at a diagram of the Earth and Moon, it's got to condense the space, doesn't it? The fact is, if the Earth was that big right there, the Moon would be that big and they'd be that far apart. And that's kind of hard to depict in a book, isn't it? But guess what? The Moon, folks, is getting farther and farther all the time. Each year, the moon recedes or leaves us 1.6 inches per year. Now, don't worry, don't worry. The Lord will come, up, come again before the moon gets too far away. What's my point? Folks, if the moon was 4 billion years old, the moon would be a lot, lot farther away by now, okay? And then there's insufficient lunar micrometeorite dust. Neil Armstrong said his number one concern aboard Apollo 11 was that the lunar module would sink down into the dust like quicksand because supposedly the moon, being 4 billion years old, would be covered with up to 6,000 feet of micrometeorite dust. Carl Sagan said likewise, this is dangerous, too much dust is on the moon. Well, apparently that wasn't quite the case. NASA, in preparation for that, installed cat whiskers, if you will, on a lunar module. They were five-foot-long rods, as you can see, that extended out of the pads. Those cat whiskers were supposed to come in contact with the lunar service, and the cat whiskers had sensors that would tell the crew that they were about to reach the moon because they just figured there'd be huge, billowing clouds of dust being churned up. Ooh, never happened. And in fact, folks... They thought those cat whiskers would be driven down into the dust. Instead, every cat whisker almost immediately struck rock and bent outward, presenting a trip hazard for the astronauts. Incidentally, I am very patriotic, as some of you know. This is kind of sad. NASA never had Armstrong and Aldrin practice erecting the American flag because they thought it would be a piece of cake. It wasn't. They couldn't get the pole more than six inches into the lunar soil. The flag kept wobbling back and forth like that. Neil Armstrong said he was scared to death that our flag would fall over right in the middle of their, their time on the moon, right in front of a live audience back on Earth. As it turns out, Buzz Aldrin reported that just as they were leaving the moon, he looked out the window, and guess what? Our flag had fallen over. It's lying in the lunar dust right now. Now, this is a very controversial evidence for a very young moon, but all I can say, folks, is, number one, I got to spend an afternoon with a NASA engineer who helped design the pads and the cat whiskers of the lunar module. I got to interview a NASA historian. They both confirmed that, to this day, NASA does not know why there was so little dust on the moon. That's because, folks, apparently the moon isn't that old after all. Speaking of lunar dust... Charlie Duke, Apollo 16 astronaut, he said that his walk with Jesus Christ made walking on the moon literally the dust of my life. But next, for the sake of time, we turn to the what of our moon, its design. We are told by astrophysicists, if our moon was approximately 10% smaller or less dense, that would be really, really bad. We had an insufficient gravity for the tides of the seas. Our coastlines would all become swamp lands. 
We have to circulate our oceans, folks, and tides help to do just that. But conversely, we are told if our moon was about 10% bigger or heavier, that would be too much gravity, and we'd have nonstop earthquakes. And then we are told by astrophysicists that the orbit of our moon is just right. Instead of it being elliptical or oval, which would be very, very, very bad, our moon's orbit around the Earth is almost perfectly circular and at just the right distance. We're back to the tides of the seas. If the moon was much further back, insufficient gravity for the tides of the seas. And if the moon was much closer, we're back to nonstop earthquakes. And then there's the angle of the moon's orbit around the Earth. This is extraordinarily unusual. Unlike other moons, and we have 200 of them in our solar system, the moon does not orbit around the Earth along the equator, like any self-respecting moon should do. Instead, our moon orbits around the Earth along the same path the orbit the Earth takes around the sun, called the ecliptic. Very unusual, but the moon is five degrees off for a very good reason. We need that moon there, folks, as a counterbalance to stabilize our Earth's orbit, but if we didn't have that five-degree tilt, we'd keep having solar eclipses all day long, and lunar eclipses all night long. Indeed, astronomers tell us that thanks to the moon, our Earth is the Goldilocks planet. It's just right. Without the moon, life could not exist on Earth as we know it. A secular person, a secular astronomer, wrote a fascinating book I enjoyed, What If the Moon Didn't Exist? And his conclusion, don't even think about it. He's considered the world's top lunar scientist, Sir Patrick Moore. He said, we owe our grateful thanks to the moon for making our existence possible. It's as if somebody knew we were coming, folks. <laughs> the last man on the moon, he's called, Eugene Cernan, Apollo 17. He said, a creator placed our, our world, our sun, and our moon where they are in the dark void. It is all just too perfect and beautiful to have happened by chance. And folks, he should know he was there. But next, we have to move on to the how of our moon, its origin. One of the main purposes of the Apollo program was to learn which of various lunar theories was correct for the evolution of our satellite. Was the moon a daughter planet of the Earth ejected from the Pacific Ocean Basin? It's called the fission theory. Was the moon a sister planet of the Earth, evolving at the same time, the parallel theory? Was the moon an adopted satellite, called the capture theory? Or was the moon a combination of all three of these, called the impact theory? Folks, when the scientists crunched the numbers, when they looked at the lunar specimens, when they looked at the design of the moon, they realized none of these theories worked. The only theory that makes sense regarding the origin of the moon. It's not evolution, folks. It's creation by God. Frank Borman, we'll hear, uh, hear more from him in a minute. Apollo 8, Gemini 7. When he was in lunar orbit, he said, I had an enormous feeling that there had to be a power greater than any of us, that there is a God. Or, speaking of power, Colonel James Irwin, Apollo 15, you can recognize him on the left-hand side in that stamp right there. 
He said, I felt the power of God like I'd never felt it before. By the way, in case you're interested, in case there's time afterwards, I had an opportunity to interview James Irwin. He told me some really awesome things about God in the moon. But for now, we note, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Well, now, that brings us to our journey to the moon, NASA's boldest journey. How many of us old people remember Apollo 11 when Neil Armstrong, wasn't that awesome? Totally unforgettable, wasn't it? Folks, I have nothing but respect for Neil Armstrong. I've read his authorized biography twice. The movie was terrible, by the way. But anyway, I have the highest admiration for him and for Apollo 11. However, after a lot of research, and after visiting these NASA installations here, and after interviewing engineers and astronauts and historians, etc., etc., wow, I came to a realization. Apollo 11, awesome! But guess what, folks? Except for landing on the moon, everything Apollo 11 did had already been done, mainly by Apollo 8. And hardly anybody remembers Apollo 8. This NASA historian said, Apollo 8's voyage was as pioneering as Apollo 11 seven months later and more dangerous. Ken Mattingly, made famous by Apollo 13, he said, I consider Apollo 8 the most significant event compared to it. Apollo 11 was anticlimactic. Neil Armstrong said, Apollo 8 was enormously bold, in many ways more important than the achievements of Apollo 11. By the way, Neil Armstrong became famous because of Apollo 8. Why? How many here know who Pete Conrad was? Don't feel bad if you don't. Only geeks know. Okay, no geeks. All right. Pete Conrad was the commander of Apollo 12. Apollo 12 was supposed to be the first lunar landing, which meant Pete Conrad would be the first man to walk on the moon. Guess what happened? NASA was so thrilled about the survival and success of Apollo 8, they moved up their lunar landing schedule. Pete Conrad and Apollo 12 got bumped. Uh, uh, NASA made Apollo 11 the first lunar landing, and since Neil Armstrong was the commander of Apollo 11, guess who got to walk on the moon first instead of Pete Conrad? Neil Armstrong, famous, right? Pete Conrad, he's a footnote. The UK Guardian said you could easily argue that Apollo 8 and not Apollo 11 deserves the title of the greatest event of the 20th century. Now, some of you undoubtedly are thinking, uh, Mr. Hoyle, uh, you're confused. This is a church. This is not aeronautical history. Why are you wasting our time with all of this? Glad you asked. Folks, there is no doubt in my mind, and many people agree with me, it turns out, that God had everything to do with the survival and the success of Apollo 8. Why? Three reasons. Number one, Apollo 8 honored God more than all other manned space flights in history combined. Now, Pastor, you're the theologian here. Would you agree that God honors those who honor him? It seems like God honored Apollo 8 a lot. Secondly, according to the New York Times, more people were praying for the survival and success of Apollo 8 
than for any other event in human history. They conservatively estimated half a billion people were praying for Apollo 8. And then third, folks, Apollo 8 needed all the help it could possibly get, and then some. Why? The Washington Post recently had a feature article three years ago. It indicated Apollo 8, it was NASA's first moonshot. It was a bold and terrifying improvisation. The mission was mind-blowing and dangerous. Fifty years later, it's hard to remember how scary Apollo 8 was. No space mission had ever presented so many exotic ways to kill astronauts. Speaking of which, one of my favorite museums, if I'm in Chicago for whatever reason, I always try to visit the Museum of Science and Industry. My wife already knows, folks. That's where I want to visit because I've always got to make my trip, my mecca, my journey to the world's first true spacecraft, the Apollo 8 capsule, down in the basement. The sign reads, staggering in its audacity, stunning in its complexity, and sobering in its dangers, Apollo 8 journeyed a quarter of a million miles from Earth, 1,000 times farther than any before. To me, that was the world's first true spacecraft. And you might think, well, wait a minute now, Tom, you're confused. What about the Mercury capsules, the Gemini capsules? What about the Russians? Hey, these were wonderful missions, wonderful space uh, capsules, folks. But consider this. Nobody had ever broken out of Earth orbit before. In fact, nobody had ever gotten out of low Earth orbit. The record was held by Gemini 11. The Gemini capsule, using a, an Agena rocket booster, flew 851 miles away from the Earth. Everybody goes, whoa, amazing. Apollo 8 was going a little bit farther than that. For the first time in history, a manned spacecraft was going to break Earth orbit, enter outer space, and make a nonstop go-for-broke cannonball run for the moon a quarter of a million miles away. It took away everybody's breath. This historian wrote, Apollo 8 was the most daring endeavor ever undertaken by man. America needed something good to happen. The director of NASA, James Webb, was presented with a flight plan for Apollo 8. After he read it, he looked up and said, are you out of your mind? The president of the United States overruled him, approved Apollo 8, and James Webb resigned in protest. This historian said nobody had any illusions about how dicey the Apollo 8 plan was. Susan Borman, the wife of Air Force Colonel Frank Borman, the commander of Apollo 8, went to Chris Kraft, the senior flight controller, and said, Chris, level with me. What are the chances of my husband coming back? He said, Susan, don't worry. We are confident. He has almost a 50-50 chance of returning. <laughs> the Apollo 8 crew members and their families tried to prepare themselves as best they could. Susan Borman, after reading the entire flight plan, swallowed hard and began writing her husband's eulogy. Bill Anders gave his wife a cassette tape and said, Honey, don't worry, I have a one out of three chance of success. If NASA uh, declares me lost in space on Christmas morning, then please listen to this cassette tape. Marin Lovell said she never prayed so hard for anything in her life. This very poignant photograph of Marin Lovell and her family, it depicts their shock and awe as they looked up at the launch of the 36-story tall Saturn V rocket that was taking off with Jim Lovell aboard. 
It appeared on the front cover of newspapers everywhere. Jim Lovell was the navigator of Apollo 8, and he said, the odds of trying to be successful were overwhelming, and perhaps at that time we didn't even understand what the odds actually were. By the way, you techies are going to love this. He was the navigator, and folks, he went to the moon using a brass navy sextant, a slide rule. How many remember slide rules? And a computer with a memory of 140th of a floppy disk. And mind you, folks, when you go to the moon, I wish it was so easy. You just point your rocket at the moon, right? Problem. The moon is moving. It's going to be in a very, very different place three days by the time you get there. So you have to aim your rocket at a point in space where you desperately hope and pray the moon is going to arrive when you need it to be there. Martin Sandler wrote my favorite family-level book on Apollo 8. He called it Apollo 8, the mission that changed everything. He said Apollo 8 was the trickiest mission. Some even said it was doomed. The tiniest error could result in the astronauts being stranded forever. Rumors were rampant that NASA had issued suicide capsules to the Apollo 8 crew members in case they were lost in space. The first major challenge facing Apollo 8 was the booster rocket, the Saturn V, the Saturn V was and still is the biggest, most powerful operational rocket ever built in history. Its first stage alone had more power than 30 747s combined. It was called the Beast, and with good reason. If the Saturn V blew up, the blast would be comparable to that of a tactical thermonuclear warhead. NASA was extremely worried about the Saturn V because in its test flight before Apollo 8, it failed miserably. And if there had been a crew aboard, they would have been killed. Apollo 8 was the next to fly on the Saturn V. And NASA was so concerned, they evacuated the entire area around the rocket on launch day for a distance of 13 square miles. Jim Lovell said he looked down as they were climbing into the capsule 36 stories up. He saw all these people running away and driving away. And he said, guys, do they know something we don't know? But folks, it was an almost perfect flight. The crew of Apollo 8 became the fastest people in history. They were now flying at over 24,000 miles per hour. They broke out of Earth orbit, reached escape velocity, penetrated the Van Allen radiation belts, and were the first human beings to enter outer space. Frank Borman looked back. He was the first person to ever see the entire planet Earth. And he saw the Earth getting smaller and smaller and said, this must be what God sees. Throughout the entire flight, Jim Lovell, even though he was a naval aviator, he said he couldn't help it. He said the words of the famous Air Force poem, High Flight, kept crossing his mind, especially the last verse. He said, over and over again, I thought and prayed, I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. The next major challenge, among others, facing Apollo 8, no lunar module. The lunar module was required for all lunar missions regardless of whether or not they were landing on the moon because it was considered a lifeboat in case there was a problem with the command module. And as you might recall, that's exactly what happened with Apollo 13. Apollo 8 had had a problem, like Apollo 13, uh, it would have been the end of the story. Next major challenge, among others, lunar orbit insertion. No manned spacecraft had ever rendezvoused with the moon before. Apollo 8 is flying now backwards, almost 6,000 miles per hour. 
and they have to achieve orbit with the moon, which is traveling laterally or sideways over 2,000 miles per hour. And it could not be more than one second off. It took four minutes and 21 seconds for Apollo 8 to slow down to reach lunar orbit, and Jim Lovell said it was the longest four minutes of his entire life. Back on the ground, George Lowe, the Apollo program director, said, if you weren't shaking, you didn't understand the problems. Back on the Earth, Marilyn Lovell quietly said they must be in God's hands. But they made it. Apollo 8 became the first manned spacecraft to orbit the moon. It made 10 orbits. They became the first human beings to see the lunar far side, causing Frank Borman to say, to boldly go where no man has gone before. He cribbed something from a TV series that had come out recently called Star Trek. Well, folks, there are lots of things we could share with you. Now, if you thought that maybe I was sidetracked by talking about technical things, it's time to get back to the Bible, okay? Time to get back to God. Apollo 8, among other things, did two extremely interesting things. First of all, Frank Borman reported that he was supposed to pray for his church for their Christmas Eve service. NASA said, you still can. Frank Borman broadcasted his prayer on Christmas Eve from outer space. But the second thing Apollo 8 did that was really memorable, in the ninth orbit around the moon, Frank Borman led his crew in the reading of Genesis chapter 1, the creation account. The New York Times estimates one billion people on Earth heard that broadcast over and over and over again. Frank Borman, he said, I saw evidence that God lives. Reading from Genesis gave us a new meaning, a new grasp of the meaning of creation. This historian here wrote, Inside mission control, nobody moved. Then, one after another, these scientists and engineers in Houston began to tear up. Case in point, how many remember, this is Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite lost it. Walter Cronkite admitted, I admit that I had tears in my eyes. It was really impressive and just the right thing to do, the right thing. Back on the ground, Gene Krantz, NASA's ultimate steely-eyed missile man, the man who never showed any emotion, admitted, for those moments I felt the presence of creation and the creator. Tears were on my cheeks. The emotion was just unbelievable. Man, how many here have seen the film Apollo 13? Okay, almost everybody. Folks, it was semi-accurate. It was not accurate here. As you might recall, Ed Harris plays Gene Krantz, okay, in the movie. And how many remember that immortal moment when Gene Krantz defiantly says, failure is not an option? How many remember that? Problem, he didn't say it. The man who said it was a Christian flight controller named Jerry Bostick. He was the technical advisor for the film Apollo 13. When he was being interviewed by Ron Howard, he made that statement. Ron Howard said, I loved it. He said, I've got to put this in the movie. We'll have Gene Krantz say it. Gene Krantz, the real one, said, I never said it, but I like it. And he named his book, Failure is Not an Option. Once again, folks, it all goes back to a Christian flight controller. And once again, it shows we cannot trust Hollywood. Jerry Bostick was right there with Apollo 8 on the ground and said, thank you, Lord, for letting me be, part, be here and be part of this. General Samuel Phillips, 
from NASA said, three astronauts who have seen the evidence of creation pause to read the most appropriate words imaginable, the majestic opening words of Genesis. This historian here said, for a global audience of one billion people, they took turns reading Genesis, Bible verses of renewal in a year of loss. Hollywood kept playing the broadcast over and over and over again. They conservatively estimated over a billion people heard it over and over and over again. I will never forget, I hope God forgives me for this, I was upset. I said, Mom, I've already heard the Apollo 8 broadcast seven times. I don't need to see it or hear it anymore. But they preempted Star Trek (laughs) to broadcast it once again. The broadcast was so popular, it was the most broadcasted segment on TV in history, and Hollywood gave the crew an Emmy when they got underground. Well, somebody didn't like it. Madeline Murray O'Hare, the atheist lady. I had the opportunity to debate her and talk with her for some time afterwards. America's most famous atheist ever. She's the one who got parent Bible study out of our schools in 1963, which was a disaster, wasn't it? She's the one who tried unsuccessfully to get in God we trust off our currency. Madden Murray O'Hare was furious that these crew members were glorifying God. And she sued NASA and tried to have prayer and Bible study banned from outer space. Her lawsuit went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they ruled against her. One of the justices said, I didn't know we had jurisdiction over the moon anyway. (laughs) The acting director of NASA said, it's a triumph of the squares, the guys with the computers and slide rules who read the Bible on Christmas Eve. Bill Anders said, We were just trying to say something sort of fundamental, something that will stop and grab people's guts. (laughs) By the way, he is the one who took the famous photograph um, called Earthrise, which was used for my favorite postage stamp. That's called In the Beginning God. And I had the opportunity to talk with his wife one time, and she thanked me for my great interest and lamented the fact that virtually nobody knows anything about what Apollo 8 did. This historian commented, to see the earth rising beyond the moon on Christmas Eve was all the confirmation of a creator that Colonel Borman needed. But folks, it was time to head back home. Long list of other challenges and dangers never faced by anybody before. For the sake of time, may we note this. The senior flight controller, Chris Kraft, got on the PA system as Apollo 8 was coming up from around its last orbit and said, look, you guys, I'm going to sit here and pray a little bit, and I'd like to have it quiet. (laughs) Apollo headed back home. Bill Anders said afterwards, we had to come home 240,000 miles to hit something that was a reentry target about the size of a letter slot seen from four miles away. People started praying real hard again. That's right, no manned spacecraft had ever reentered the Earth's atmosphere from outer space. The Apollo 8 crew, when they reached the Earth's atmosphere, they plunged through the Earth's atmosphere at 25,000 miles per hour, negative gravity, and their heat shield spiked at 5,000 degrees. NASA was understandably very worried about this. All the rules were different for a manned spacecraft coming from outer space, coming home. They had Apollo 8 skip across the atmosphere to slow down and cool down. You guessed it, nobody had ever done that before either. 
By the way, oh, I wish I'd been on that airplane. There was a 707 near Hawaii. Apollo 8, its landing, which one, one more reason why it was dangerous, it was the first manned spacecraft re-entry at night. The crew members and the passengers of a 707 at night near Hawaii saw the Apollo 8 fireball. And the captain said it left a trail 125 miles long. <laughs> but they made it, didn't they? NASA was stunned at how many challenges were successfully overcome. The people I've spoken with NASA tell me, of every manned space flight in history, Apollo 8 was the most successful and certainly the most daring. And there are historians who say their flight was the most daring in all of history. The only significant problem, which surprised everybody, was that poor Frank Borman had a serious problem with motion sickness. He got desperately ill, waiting for the Navy to pull him out of the water. A lot more can be said about that, but we need to wind things up here. The New York, New York Times said, The travels that earned immortality for Polo, Columbus, and Magellan all fade before the incredible achievement of the Apollo 8 crew. How many remember David Brinkley, as in Huntley and Brinkley? Remember, they were the competitors of Walter Cronkite, remember? He said, it was almost unreasonably perfect. It will be remembered as long as the human race lasts. Unfortunately, the last part was not true, was it? Hardly anybody remembers Apollo 8. Time magazine bumped the President of the United States from their first issue of 1969, which was their Man of the Year issue. For the first time, they decided to call it the Men of the Year issue. And they put the Apollo 8 crew on their front cover. No astronaut has ever been on Time Magazine's front cover as the Man of the Year, including Neil Armstrong or John Glenn. <laughs> Time Magazine said that Apollo 8 was a particularly providential blessing in a time of disruption and despond. How's that for alliteration, Pastor? That almost preaches, doesn't it? Susan Borman gratefully said, look at all the prayers around the world that pulled this thing through. Valerie Anders was interviewed for TV and said, as for prayer, giving thanks is a course from which we never graduate. Or another historian said, with Apollo 8, for the first time in its 11-year history, America took the lead in the space race. But folks, note please, the success of Apollo 8 wasn't just a political victory over the Soviet Union. It was a moral and spiritual victory over godless communism. That was its main impact. Robert Zimmerman wrote my favorite book for adults on Apollo 8. I highly recommend it. Genesis, the story of Apollo 8. Zimmerman wrote, Yuri Gagarin, the Russian astronaut, he proclaimed he saw no god in space. Borman, Lovell, and Anders saw him everywhere and said so. <laughs> Jim Lovell, he said after he got home, we arrived on a planet that had the right amount of mass to have the gravity to contain water and an atmosphere just at the proper distance from a star. It appeared to me that God had given man, mankind sort of a stage. Frank Borman said, the more we learn about the wonders of our universe, the more clearly we are going to perceive the hand of God. Susan Borman said, God has been so very good, I honestly to this day believe with every cell of my body that Apollo 8 was a lucky accident. Is that what she said? It was a miracle. And she should know she was there. 
Secular author Joseph Ellis, I've read a lot of his books. He's extremely secular, folks. I was stunned when he wrote, crucial moments in American history have turned on what? Providential events that defy rational explanation. As we wrap up things, folks, this was not well uh, publicized. Buzz Aldrin on the surface of the moon read from Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? May we have the lights, please. We want to thank you so much for coming. I hope this is worth your while. We hope and pray if there's anybody here who does not know what it means to accept the Creator as Savior, that you will not go home until you talk to one of us. I am sure Pastor would be thrilled if you came up to him and said, Pastor, show me how to go to heaven. How do I know for sure I will have eternal life? I mean, would that make your week, Pastor? I, I, I think it would, would be. So make Pastor's week, okay? Most of us here, we do know the Lord, right? We're going to heaven. We're born again. We're saved. We're redeemed. We're regenerated. Done deal, right? But as the song goes, they've only just begun. Salvation, as you know, is a free gift of God. We confess our sins to the Lord. We repent of our sins to the Lord. We ask for his forgiveness. We ask him to be our Lord and Savior. We're born again. He's taking us to heaven, right? Done deal. But folks, after that, if we really love the Lord, we should want to serve our Lord, right? And we can do that in a great church just like this one here. Pastor, am I correct in saying that there are all kinds of spiritual employment opportunities here? Yeah, I, I suspect so. I have uh, the opportunity to be in over 500 churches and schools. I've never heard of any church or school turning down an offer to help, okay? There's something for everybody, folks. There's even something for an invalid. That person can be a prayer warrior. I'll take all the prayer I can get. Would you like somebody praying for you all the time, Pastor? Absolutely. So if you're an invalid, great opportunity for you to get a list of people to pray for in your church. And in that way, folks, someday when we stand before the Lord, he'll be able to say to each one of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We could go on and on. Should we take any questions or comments, Pastor? Or I could tell some more stories about James Irwin or... Okay, all right. Oh, I finished early. Terrific. Okay, we got some extra time. Any questions or comments before I share some more stories from Apollo 15 Christian astronaut James Irwin? Usually takes people a couple minutes. Yes, sir. Oh, not not very many. Most of them are way up in years. Uh, they're all in their 80s and 90s. Um, I wanted to talk with Bill Anders, but he's, his wife told me that he was very elderly and wasn't doing anything like that. So uh, I'd have to figure it out, but I haven't been able to talk to too many because, again, they're getting up there in years, and they're slowly passing away. Neil Armstrong has already died, for example. As far as I know, all three of the Apollo 8 astronauts are still alive, but they're all in their late 80s and 90s now. So I would love to talk to more, but... I, I wish it could be more. Um, I'm very pleased I got to speak with James Irwin at length. That was very, very uh, exciting. Anyone else? Well, okay, speaking of James Irwin. Oh, somebody's pointing a finger at somebody. Okay, uh, somebody is pointing a finger. Okay. We have a young man way back there. Yes, sir. Real loud, buddy. 
I wish that were true, buddy. There's no indication they were all Christians, okay? We're pretty sure certain ones were Christians, and there's some question marks about some of the others. But no, they weren't all Christians, no. Yes, sir? Buzz Aldrin, yes, sir. Uh-huh, Apollo 11 on the lunar surface. Yeah, right there in front of Neil Armstrong. <laughs> he took communion. So, good point. Okay, uh, oh, I'm sorry, yes, sir. Oh, excellent question. If you didn't hear his question, he wants to know about all the ground support personnel uh, in our space program. How many of them were Christians? Is that right? Actually, quite a few of them were. Um, and I used to quote from some of them in this program, but the program got way, way too long. The first version of this program, the beta version, was an hour and a half, and that was just too long. So I had to tearfully sometimes cut stuff out. Pastor, have you ever had a really, really good sermon, but you realized it was too long? Yeah. <laughs> not scripted, folks. That was not scripted. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Most pastors don't have accommodating people like you, and they have to edit their sermons. And they tell me sometimes it's absolute agony to start cutting out entire chunks of a really good sermon, you know, great illustrations and quotes and facts. And they got to, I do the same thing with this program, okay? Something had to go. All right, so the flight crew members, they, they had to go. But uh, no, there were quite a number uh, that were very devout individuals. Um, I don't know if you remember or not. Uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry, we haven't done it here. Uh, we have a program that includes Apollo 13, and there is a very famous flight controller there who became a Christian because of Apollo 13, and he reports that he personally knew over a dozen flight controllers who became Christians as a result of Apollo 13. So it can be very, very exciting. But yes, a lot of... A lot of flight, uh, ground support people, including flight controllers, were Christians or became Christians. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. No, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. Um, that was James Irwin. <laughs> I'm going quick. I was smiling because I'm reminded of something that happened. I was on my way to Denver, Colorado, for a speaking engagement, and who's sitting next to me? But James Irwin's number two guy, James Irwin was an extremely devout Christian, and after Apollo 15, he began a Christian ministry called High Flight, and he began writing books and then speaking all over the country about his Christian testimony. His number two guy was speaking for him in another church in Denver. Both of us had our slideshows with, this is back in the ancient days of 35-millimeter slides, okay? How many remember 35-millimeter slide? Yeah. Before digital, okay, BD, before digital. Um, at any rate, he and I had the same idea. We did not trust our slideshows to be inside our check luggage, so we carried them with us on the plane. Anyway, he's sharing with me his stories about climbing Mount Ararat and climbing up there with James Irwin, the astronaut, and we took turns showing each other our slideshows by pressing the slide up against the window next to us and before long, seven people got up out of their seats and were gathered around us on the airplane watching our slideshow. And, of course, they had a hard time going. 
What is that right there? <laughs> That's why I smiled, ma'am. Anyway, that was an interesting fight, but let's get back to James Irwin. James Irwin uh, has climbed Mount Ararat seven times, and I discussed this with James Irwin. He's convinced Noah's Ark is there, but he indicated, and so did John Morse. He told me the same thing, and John Morse has been there 13 times. James Irwin said that he'd climbed Mount Ararat seven times. He says something always goes wrong. Something always stops them. In the case of John Morse, most dramatic example, John Morse reported that he and two colleagues were climbing over a ridge and they were sure Noah's Ark was going to be down below that ridge and they were struck by lightning. Hint, hint, hint. (laughs) John Morse and James Irwin are both convinced the Ark is there, but God is keeping a lid on it until he's ready for the Ark to be revealed to the world as a last final warning to a sinful generation that just as there was judgment during a time of Noah, there's going to be judgment again. That's what both of them told me. So they're very sure it's there, but they said too many weird things happen. Okay, Ark explorers have been arrested as spies. They've been robbed. They've been kidnapped. Something always goes wrong. And so most Christian explorers have pretty much concluded that the Lord's not ready yet. (laughs) And they're not going to take any chances. (laughs) Wow, these are great comments. Okay, uh, James Irwin, real quick here, um, he did, uh, uh, you know, find this ministry called High Flight. And uh, uh, long story short, the principal of Stadium High School in Tacoma knew me because I'd spoken in his school before. And he calls me up. He says, do you want to hear James Irwin speak? I said, oh, I haven't heard him speak in a long time. Yes, I'm there. I canceled my doctor's appointment and, and went to Stadium High School to hear James Irwin speak. Place was packed. There are 1,500 kids and parents are jammed in that auditorium to hear a man speak who walked on the moon. And Irwin had these slides that nobody had ever seen before, including me. Awesome presentation. And he gave his testimony the entire time. Then afterwards, he says... Now, boys and girls, gentlemen, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but usually everybody wants my autograph. To make that easier, I have written a little booklet called High Flight, and I have personally autographed with ink, an ink pen. It's not printed. It's a personal autograph from me on the back page. Everybody here can have a copy. And Irma nominated me to be his assistant. And um, he says, my assistant, when you come up here, he will hand you a copy of the book, and then I'll shake your hand. And so there's a big, long line of kids and parents, and they all filed, but nobody wants to shake my hand. <laughs> I handed everybody this booklet, and during a lull, I start reading the booklet. It's a hardcore gospel tract. <laughs> I mean, as blunt as possible. And he's handing it out to these kids. And I said afterwards, uh, I got to speak with him for quite a while, and I said, Colonel Irwin, I'm delighted at your presentation I'm delighted at your testimony. I'm stunned at your tract. You're handing out a gospel tract to public school kids on public school property in a public school building during public school hours. How do you get away with that? You know what he said? Hey, I can do anything I want. I walked on the moon. (laughs) Um, uh, Let me just mention one thing. Colonel Ehrman told me, and he said this just did not get into the news. Colonel Ehrman said that on a lunar service, they had erected all their scientific gear, 
set everything up, and nothing would come on. This was bad, bad, bad. I mean, half the reason of the mission was all this gear that it had set up, okay? Well, Ehrman said he knelt down on his knees and he prayed, and he asked the Lord to do something. When he opened his eyes, Ehrman said he was down on his knees. He's now much lower down. He's no longer standing or hunched over. He's on his knees now, and now he had a clear view of underneath the lunar module, and he instantly saw the problem. It was a proverbial loose plug, <laughs> He crawled under the lunar module, tightened up the connection, and all the equipment came on because an American astronaut knelt on his knees before the creator. His knee prints are still there. Incidentally, Ehrman also told me that he rededicated his life to Jesus Christ on the moon. So, wonderful Christian man, wonderful, very, very clear testimony. All righty. I don't want to overstay my welcome here. Any other questions or comments? Speak now or forever hold yourself in pieces. <laughs> going once, going twice, going three times. Well, I thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be with you. We hope that this program was a blessing to you. And once again, for those of you who don't know Christ yet, please, please, please talk to one of us before you go. You need Christ. It's only the most important thing you're ever going to do, accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, my late father, who never came to know the Lord, he told me he would not even drive around the block in his car without car insurance. Because he said, luck has it, the one time you don't have car insurance and you drive a block away, you're going to hit somebody. He said, that's just the way luck is. So he says, you always have to have car insurance. And one time I says, Dad, you're so worried about car insurance. What about eternal insurance? It's the most important insurance to have. You need to make sure... That when you die, and you're going to, Dad, we're all going to die. We can't escape death and taxes, right? We're all going to die. You need to know when you die, you're going to heaven. Because you don't know yet, do you? He said, no, and I don't need to talk about it now. And folks, I'm sorry, as far as I know, my father never got his eternal insurance policy validated by the Lord by accepting Jesus Christ. So once again, folks, lesson for all of us, make sure you're going to heaven. Make sure you're not assuming a single thing. <laughs> the stakes are way, way, way too high. Better to double check and make sure you're born again than to just hope or assume. Right, Pastor? Thank you again. God bless you. And at this time, a final word from our sponsor. Pastor? <laughs>